You just have to keep repeating your ROI to strangers at dinner parties, to your manager when you see them in an elevator. Because then when you are asked to defend yourself or in one of these layoff scenarios, you know exactly how much you contribute and it's a concrete dollar amount. I've found that it's very confidence boosting. Change at work is tough and it's seemingly constant. New leadership, new boss, new role, new responsibilities, new strategies. Suddenly, everything you thought was certain has been upended and you're left fretting about what's next. Though change at work is a constant, the stress and confusion it often induces, it doesn't have to be. Our guest today is Vanessa Ginarelli. She's the author of Surviving Change at Work. She's navigated difficult situations herself and has practical guidance that can help you get your bearings. We speak with Vanessa about dealing with uncertainty and how to decrease the odds that you'll be laid off. We also discuss what happens when the mission of your organization has changed and how to know when it's time to go. This is Design Better, where we explore creativity at the intersection of design and technology. I'm Eli Wooler. And I'm Aaron Walter. You can get ad-free episodes a week early and get access to our monthly AMAs with big names in design and tech by becoming a DB Plus subscriber. It's also the best way to support the show. Visit designbetter.plus to learn more. Stay tuned after the interview for a special glimpse inside Automatic, makers of WordPress, which powers more than 40% of all websites around the world. We chat with Lori McLeese, Global Head of Human Resources at Automatic, about the advantages of being a fully distributed team and what's kept her excited about working at Automatic for over 13 years. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. And now, back to the show. Vanessa Generelli, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you for having me. You've just come out with a very timely book called Surviving Change at Work. And I think anyone who's been in the tech industry for a little while, change is pretty familiar. Companies change really fast, sometimes in a brutal way. In fact, there's a quote at the beginning of your book I just want to share. Organizations like Rivers are always in a state of change, expanding, contracting, evolving. If you joined an organization whose goal is light speed growth or the company is less than five years old, you'll find yourself at several inflection points wondering if the company is still for you. So why did you write this book? <laughs> well, <laughs> what kicked off the idea was how the day that GitHub was acquired, which was back in 2018, and I woke up and I led a team at GitHub. It was a small team at the time. And my phone was just, it was buzzing so much it was falling off my bedside table. And when I picked it up, it said, GitHub is to be acquired, deal could be announced on Monday. And no one could answer any of my questions. When big changes happen, not all the details have been worked out yet, right? And so there's this information vacuum while that is sorted out. And that feeling, that void, was one of the sort of formative moments in my life. And I noticed that basically every company goes through 
these big lurches as they move from early stage to finding product market fit to hyper growth. Every company has those big lurching inflection points. And as an industry, we have few to no tools to support employees as those changes happen. And so I've been calling this book the missing manual for tech employees. As a supportive guide, it's one part, you know, mini MBA, business 101. It's one part career planning. But there's also this piece that as designers, you're hired to be a designer and like an amazing kick-ass designer. That's your domain. But also to succeed at a company, there's all this other stuff that you are just expected to know how to do, right? You're supposed to know how to get buy-in for your ideas. You're supposed to know how promotions work and what the business goals are going to be of the organization as it shifts gears to a growth phase. And I wanted to fill in those gaps. I wanted to give folks the 30,000 foot view of what is likely to happen so they can make more informed choices. One essay that I thought kind of relates to what we're talking about here that was written a while ago by Molly Graham called Give Up Your Legos. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I think about it a lot because I spent a good portion of my career, you know, I did my own startup thing for a while. I've joined other small startups. And then while I was at Envision, it was the first time I was at a really like kind of growth stage company that was just like gaining like 20 employees a week in some cases. And I felt fortunate because I think maybe largely due to like short attention span or being interested in a lot of different things, I have never had the problem of like my job changing. It's like, oh, okay, this is something new. This is exciting. But I can imagine there are folks out there that are just like really love what they do and they're really deep into it. How do you advise people around that? Like if you're kind of attached to what you're doing or you feel like you want to focus on this one area and things are changing around you, how do you adapt to that? I feel like there are a few pieces that I would really like to pick apart. And the first piece is the role changing. Some folks really love new things and innovation. They burn the midnight oil and they're so super curious. And so change is exciting to them. But for many, many others, change is really painful. And we know that it's painful because McKinsey says that 70% of change initiatives fail due to employee resistance. And the work of Rosabeth Moss Cantor at Harvard, she's like this Harvard Business School OG, she has dedicated her life to studying employee resistance and change. And she's come up with 10 different ways that change can hurt you, from loss of autonomy to surprise, to the difference effect, to loss of face. And, you know, sometimes the threat is real, right? Sometimes there is an existential threat to the organization and to your role. So I feel like one piece of advice I would give to perhaps a younger Eli or an earlier career Eli is to validate that the change is painful and that there is some grief that one should allow themselves when those sorts of changes happen. The second piece is, I sort of read in your question, there's this issue of heartbreak. When an organization grows up, you might go from having small business clients, I'd envision maybe some like, you know, individual shops, agencies. But eventually, when a company grows up, they're enterprise clients. And enterprise clients have very specific and sometimes, you know, not particularly exciting needs. And a lot of us in Gen Z, millennials, mission is really important to our sense of work. But the 
more mature a company grows, the more there can be some drift away from the mission. And that can be a really sore source of heartbreak for employees that, you know, they join to make widgets for reporters in places where speech is really protected. And all of a sudden they're making widgets for, I don't know, Fox News. And that is really, that happens. That sort of heartbreak happens. Also giving that advice to our younger selves that, which is, I'm leading into the third piece here, which is the piece that you are in control of is what is it that you want? And that is a really difficult question to answer, I think, for most people. For my direct reports, for folks I counsel and I coach, usually they say, what's your five-year plan? And that is the worst question I think anyone has ever asked because who knows what it will happen in the next five years? So we look backwards at the previous five years. And the robots rule the entire planet. Yeah, totally. So <laughs> I advise folks to, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, on working on your possible future. But I advise folks to just think about their next step and find three general directions that would work for you for your next step. So no matter what the company does, the thing that you have the control over is, is this still part of your path? Yes or no? I like that, Vanessa, because having been through these like major changes so many times in my career, the predominant feeling is there's a lot of fear because you know I thought I had control I thought I had mastery I thought I had autonomy and now the ground underneath my feet has totally shifted and it's not what I expected and I have mixed feelings so from the employee's perspective I feel very sympathetic about what that feels like that there's fear and these terrible the soup of emotion and you want to grasp or find the thing that I have control over. So remembering like I can stay or I can go or I can look for other opportunities within the organization. There are things that could happen. It's not as dire as you might think. But then there's also part of me that's like, sometimes we get so lost in the microcosm of our day-to-day that we don't actually realize like, oh yeah, this is a changing organism that I'm living inside of. What did you expect that it was going to be exactly the same for the next 10 years or so? It's just not not going to happen. How do, how do we hold those two things in our head? Yeah, so having the employee sense of agency and envisioning your possible future on the one side, the second tool that helps you step into your power is seeing the organization at what I call in the book a 30,000-foot view. And that is looking at the different expectations processes, requirements, and business objectives of the company at the early stage, right? At the early stage, I'm sure you all have done this. Eli has had his own startup. If that's the early stage, everything is the focus on research and development, right? It's all engineers and product, maybe one designer if you are lucky. And the expectations are good enough, right? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We can afford to be a little sloppy in this for the sake of time. And HR is basically like, you know, a tool like Gusto and a little bit of payroll paperwork. And then you lurch to a space where you are looking to replicate the sale of your product consistently in a way that can scale. And so all of the job descriptions and expectations change because the goal of the business, right, is to find that alignment between product and customer. So you see a lot more salespeople 
And that can feel some kind of way to folks in parts of the company that aren't GNA. And then when the business moves again to hypergrowth, the expectations for your individual role, your autonomy will be very reduced. That is just a thing that happens because for the company to scale efficiently, there need to be a lot of people that do exactly what you do in order for there to be some push-in and redundancy so it can scale. So you're not, you're not innovating. You're not YOLOing it, right? You're not making up an answer every single time something happens. You're following playbooks. You're staying in a pretty narrow swim lane and seeing when an employee or an individual contributor or a manager sees that these are the expectations of the organization at a 30,000 foot level, it introduces some distance and a certain amount of objectivity saying like, this is the way it is. And I talk a lot in the book about this notion of alignment and alignment I talk about as a conversation with the company, which is the company is going to have new challenges. Things come up, things like chip shortages, things like geopolitical issues. They're going to make changes in response to those challenges. You can decide what you want and then articulate what you want in a compelling way to the company. And if it doesn't land, accept and integrate and take the next step anyway, or take a step back and decide that somewhere else is a better place for your talent. You mentioned earlier this existential fear and existential as far as your role may be going away as things change. And that's certainly right now, you know, the headwinds in the industry are such that lots of people are facing layoffs. But do you have any advice for folks if they're really passionate about what they're doing and where they are, they can decrease the odds that they might be laid off? Well, it's very important, and this might sound like uber-capitalistic to the designer or contributor or manager who might be listening to this, which is to know your own personal return on investment to the company. And when you ask people, you both are managers, right? When you ask your direct reports, what's your ROI? That's really not a lot of people know how to draw a direct line between their work and how the company makes money. That definitely can be the case, especially on the general administrative side of the house. So folks in marketing, folks in design, business ops, it can feel really abstract. But there are exercises in the book to help you look at where you contribute value to the org, to your clients and customers, to other teams in the org, if you're in a service organization, like a design organization, marketing and design, or to your other colleagues and peers with regard to the support that you offer them. And thinking about how you contribute value at all these different levels and beginning to say it out loud to people, right? The way that I contribute value to the company is when I was at GitHub, I help students integrate Git and GitHub into their workflows. And we know that every student eventually is one of the most active users on the platform and they were the customer lifetime value was an eventual dollar amount. And so you just have to keep repeating your ROI. And I say in the book, to strangers at dinner parties, to your manager when you see them in an elevator. Because then when you are asked to defend yourself or in one of these layoff scenarios, you know exactly how much you contribute and it's a concrete dollar amount. I've found that it's very confidence boosting. How do we think about 
adaptability and resilience. One of the challenges, people get a little comfortable that this is what I do. I've been doing this for a while. I'm successful. I'm sort of recognized for this is what my role is. And that can be a pretty dangerous place to be if you're living inside of a ever-changing organism. How do we become more resilient? Every six months, I encourage everyone to take a step back and look at the organization from when you joined to today, because it's going to change so much faster. As Eli said, you know, 20 new employees a week. There are going to be so many that you don't know their names. They're going to come in and start making decisions. And you may not share the same values, right? Especially if they're managers. Managers tend to be like flavor bombs of culture, concentrated flavor bombs. Observe how the company works now. Observe the company, how it works now. Does that still work for you? And more mature companies have these sort of reflection and flexion points. I'm sure you all have done quarterly planning, H1, H2 planning, where you look at how have things gone? What do we want to do in the future? But younger companies, companies that are focused on high growth, don't have these built-in, like the cadence of these built-in inflection points. So one part of the resilience and adaptability piece is observation. And the other piece is asking does that work for you? So one of the things that helps with resilience is just like knowing what to expect. And that's the part that I always found really challenging. I was at MailChimp early on, like one of the first people hired. Back in the day. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Back in the days of Katie Kiefer Lee and MailChimp being the content design epicenter of the internet. Yeah, at the very beginning there. And then eight years later, it was a very different place, just like super operationalized. And we would talk a lot. We would try to help people through changes. But honestly, for myself, I think most of us in the organization, we didn't really know the stages so much ourselves. What are the stages that a company might go through from those very early days? It's a few of us in a room to, hey, it's like a hundred of us to, I don't recognize most of these people here, but I guess we all work in the same place because we have badges. What are those stages? And how do we know if our skills and our interests map well to where the company's going? Yeah, so at the early stage, you're trying to find out, can we make something that people want? And that is totally, usually R&D driven. And you have this tight feedback loop with the customer. So your product planning is pretty reactive. If you were employee four at MailChimp, you were talking to people a lot and having a lot of direct dialogue with people who were using it. And you were able to make changes really autonomously too. There are no approvals to wade through. There's no red tape. QA, probably not. Documentation, probably not. So for folks who are really comfortable with larger, ambiguous roles and autonomy, but at the same time can deal with the fact that the company may change on a dime and your skills might not be a fit, and you might not have top-level goals, and you might not even know which customer you're serving, really. If that works for you, great. But that's how you can usually tell if you're in an early-stage org. Product market fit, the business-level goal, right, is to package the product in a way that can scale profitably. The mistake, right, we talk about getting in the book, we talk about getting the pacing of a company right. So the company is unlikely to invest 
hugely in any sort of marketing initiative until they get this piece of the product market fit piece right. You're still creating new features. You're still innovating. People are burning the midnight oil and you're beginning to get managers in who have domain level expertise. It's not just one person who does security and reliability and platform. You begin to have more management that is domain specific. You still have a relatively strong aspect of autonomy, but when things go wrong, you are unlikely to have any sort of standard operating procedure. But you do begin to have some HR people. You're beginning to hire a little bit more. That's how you know you're in that phase. And I love product market fit organization. You still have so much freedom and the company is still pretty tightly connected to the mission. And you're usually still pretty close to the founders. You know the founding team personally. You understand that they are authentic people. The best ones are authentic people. And you have this ambient sense of the values too. The people who are there, they all still generally understand why they are all doing this thing together. And then you lurch into hypergrowth and the hypergrowth phase, it is all about all the scale, all the time. You said yourself that things become operationalized. And so you see people around with titles like marketing ops, business ops, all these sales ops, everything that helps the company replicate steps and processes quickly. And your autonomy is really compromised because of that, those sort of rules and regulations. Your planning goes from reactive. Remember, early stage and product market fit, you're talking a lot to the customer. You're getting a lot of feedback. And that's really fun for some people. But around the hypergrowth phase, things shift to proactive product planning with a backlog that is expected to be groomed, accurate, KPIs, products is going to need to make commitments about what's going to you know, be delivered. There needs to be security because once you create something people want, you have to protect your product from being compromised. So you have to make your way through security review and stuff like that, procurement. Spending the money that you have already gotten budget for becomes as hard as getting the budget. However, I'm sure that you all can remember some really great mentors from these hypergrowth stage companies who have done this before. And so if you're earlier in your career and you're looking to see how it's done, a hypergrowth phase company, they will have some space to give you mentorship in a way that early stage and product market fit. Mostly you're just trying to make it up as you go along. When I was doing GitHub education, I counseled a lot of early in career folks. And this book is for more early in career folks, probably up to director level, that if you're looking to learn from someone who has experience in this particular domain, hypergrowth is probably a safer bet. So people can just think like, do my skills map to one of these phases here? Because they're culturally, they're very different. When it's like super operationalized, it's very different than making it up as we go. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, people speak differently. You'll notice some legalese creep into, all of a sudden there's a corporate communications department. Do you remember, did MailChimp get a corporate communications department at some point? I think Envision probably does. Kate Kiefer Lee. That was Kate? Yes. Yeah. Her approach was so creative. She kept MailChimp so authentic. And that was really something that was a very special moment in time. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. 
And now, back to the show. I wanted to pivot slightly or go back to something you were talking about earlier about mission and you know how it changes as the organizations grow. And I'm curious, I'm sure a lot of people find themselves in a situation where if they started earlier, the company had a very specific mission that they were aligned with, and maybe it's changed. But are there other ways to align with that? And it sort of relates back to a conversation we had a little while back with Dan Pink, who talks about purpose and this idea of having you know purpose with a capital P, like this big a grand mission that's maybe like the Patagonias of the world have to make products that are environmentally sound that you can align with. But there's also this small P purpose, which is like, I'm making a contribution and I'm helping my colleagues out. How do you think about that as it relates to your book? Yeah. So straight off the dome is an awareness of where the company is at in its life cycle, right? That's why we do so much digging into the phases is because you just will assume that as you approach hyper growth, there will be some mission drift and some purpose. And so if that's true for you, maybe you just stick with folks that are not in the hypergrowth phase in general. I advise folks to look around at who writes the books on your shelves? Who do you follow on YouTube? Whose work do you recommend? Those are likely to be folks whose careers you admire. You can find purpose in the paths that they have drawn. I refer to that as prior art. From there, think about the qualities of the role that you would like to have. So for me, a huge hero of mine is Claire Hughes Johnson, the former CEO of Stripe. Very mission-driven, increased the GDP of the internet, and her role values autonomy, values employee respect. So I worked backwards. I identified the pieces of Claire Hughes Johnson's role that I wanted and made steps, gradual steps in that general direction. And that is what I advise other folks to do is whatever your purpose is, you might not even know. It takes a little while to tease that apart. What does mission and purpose look like for you? I also wanna give some space to the fact that millennials, Gen Z, it used to be that we were entirely mission driven, wanted our companies to do better. But the economic climate has created this massive tension between money and mission in our work lives. I did just want to name that. Deloitte says that two out of five employees have rejected a job or assignment because it didn't align with their values. But at the same time, folks are staying in their roles and feeling that sense of cognitive dissonance. Like, I need this for my bottom line because we have to eat. But also, this doesn't define me. There are pieces of it that I am compromising on. So I did just want to give voice to that. Folks who have some cognitive dissonance right now, I think a lot of us are feeling it. I do talk in the book, there are some tools, I call it career planning without the pain, that can help you get more aligned on a track towards the next step that feels better for you, or even carving out space in the role where you're doing work that feels better for you. We're not living in 2019 funding environments, 2019 sort of product spaces. We're in a very different climate. Yeah. How about when something as simple as your boss changes? I mean, that can just upend a job entirely. I might actually even just turn it on the two of you for just a second. Can you think of a time when your boss left and it just really hit you hard? Yeah, so I have a very specific one. Aaron was my boss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no (laughs) way! He left. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I was devastated. (laughs) You know, I mean, we had such a great relationship and I think I leaned on him as a mentor. 
the same time it was a partnership too. Even yeah. back then, I felt like it was, we had a real partnership. So that's one that definitely comes to mind for me. I tell you, Eli was the person I was thinking of when I was thinking, I've got to move on. I've got new things I want to do. And I was just thinking, what about Eli? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Like the stages of a life cycle in a company, leadership changes follow a pretty consistent arc also. And like we identified with the different phases that we discussed, the organization wants different things in its leaders as it matures. And there is a point at which like the old guard moves on, right? Because they want more creativity. They want more freedom. And between the high turnover in our industry, the fact that a lot of CEOs get replaced as the company matures too, and the company needs different leaders at different times, chances are you're going to get a new leader in the very, very near future. If not at the top, at the CEO level, then a department head or your direct boss. Happens a lot. Fortunately, like the stages of a company, leadership changes follow a pretty consistent arc. And that doesn't make it any better, but it does give you a sense of what happens next. And if you can't go with your boss, which I'm sure that every little piece of Eli wanted to come with, whatever Aaron was up to, a new leader will, in the first their first 90 days, they will set high-level goals for their team or their department or the company, listen to those goals, and try to see your own work inside it and see how your own work contributes to it. Not all leaders are gifted communicators, too. So you might want to go and look at their background on LinkedIn to see if they are a product-driven leader. Do they want to grow the company through features and experimenting? Are they a sales-driven leader where they want to extract a lot of value out of the process and the product? And yeah, you want to do some audience analysis there to see what is going to be important to this leader. How are they going to be assessed? Too, so you can speak in terms that matter to them. And then step two, after they set goals, they're going to shop around their vision for where they want to take the team or the company. They might have it as a one-on-one with you. They might have it as a roundtable or an all-hands. But they're trying to socialize their vision and also build trust and relationships. And what I would say to that person is you definitely want to highlight your bright spots you want to highlight what about your work or your team, that Chip and Dan Heath call it bright spots, about what's working in the organization. Because leaders like to invest in homegrown solutions that are working well. If you have a sort of team dynamic that works for you, tell your new leader about it. And also understand that their vision, this new leader's vision, is an offer to you. It is not a directive their vision can't succeed unless you also buy into it and take a step forward with it. So when we're talking about sort of softening the relationship between the company and the individual to be more of a conversation in terms of alignment, see that vision as an offer because you don't necessarily have to accept it. And then step three is that they might clean house. That is a thing that happens. Depending on the health of the business, when the CEO joins, involuntary attrition, aka terminations, can range from 12.6 to 26%. And so the threat of that change is real, and the organization will have to grieve and heal in order to move forward. But that is what to expect, generally speaking. And 
if you have a vision for where you want to take your role, the leadership change is the time to do it. This is the time where you can convince a new leader of where you want to take something. This is the time where you can try something new. A friend of mine, every single time they get a new leader, their issue is pay equity. Pay transparency and pay equity. Now, like, probably won't move forward with any, but I just have to shoot my shot. And I had a really beautiful experience when my leader changed. I started reporting to this person named Shinku Niyogi, and now he leads product at Databricks. And I rolled it all out. I was like, this is the crew. This is where I want to take the role. He was like, great, do that, because it was something else off his plate. So see it as an opportunity and also understand what's going to happen and how can you make the most of it you do that, they're going to see you as a partner, not as like someone they have to tend to. 100%. So in the environment where this is not as true now, I would say, as it was, you know, pre-headwinds in the tech world, but (laughs) there was a time, think (laughs) think back to these old days where, you know, the, the norm was kind of like jumping job to job, trying to get better salary, better stock options, et cetera, et cetera. But Can you make an argument for even, let's say that time comes back and it very well might, these things are cyclical. Can you make an argument for the value in sticking around and sticking through something and realizing that maybe, you know, the grass isn't always greener in the new place you jump to? Well, in the last chapter in the book, I talk about moving on. And I think at the heart of your question is, do I stay or do I go? I ask folks that, can you still meet the goals for your possible future in that role? Yes, down. If you can still meet the goals for the next step that you have in mind, cool. But if your meetings begin to feel like a 10-round boxing match or you feel like your boss isn't hearing you or you find yourself not believing the words coming out of your mouth, I don't know as managers, you've had that moment where you're just like, I just, this is not what I want to say to anyone in this world. And that's when you you feel that sense of contortionism. It's not just cognitive dissonance. You're like squeezing yourself into a little box that doesn't feel right for you. That's when it's time to move on. Transition is never easy. There is this wonderful book by William Bridges called Transitions. And he talks about how transition is this heightened place of reflection. And transition begins with an ending. And then there's this neutral zone where you can't see the other side (laughs) and it sort of feels foggy. And a lot of people will thrash in that neutral zone. They'll try a lot of different things. And then it ends with a beginning, right? So understanding that you're going to need to go through this transition and it's going to be foggy. But I'm a big fan of understanding when something doesn't suit you anymore, taking a little bit of time if you can. That's a very privileged thing to do. And understanding what you've learned from the role, how it's changed you, what you want next, and just saying to yourself, I'm in transition and sitting with that. It's definitely really, really hard for folks who are design-minded, who want to know like the goals of every step they make, but just having faith that there's something for you at the end of that particular path. I really like the work of Jenny O'Dell, too. How to Do Nothing and Saving Time are two books that have really informed my thinking about we have this narrative that you know you always have to keep going up every role that you have has to be bigger stronger faster more high profile and 
she kind of asked this question like, okay, what's that about? What's driving that? And I feel like everyone should have those sorts of questions with themselves when they're having thoughts about moving on. Yeah, it's very true. And it's hard to go back. But Eli and I come across people who have kind of gotten all the way up to the top of their career. And so many often say, like, I'd love to just go back to being an individual contributor. And those that do, like, are very happy. (laughs) Management is not for everybody. And some folks really, you know, in their possible future can identify, I really love the domain-specific work, right? I really love the UX work. I really love serving customers. And it's true, because you both have been leaders, that the Leaders generally just absorb more and more things as a way to move up. Absorbing a lot of things, that's heavy. There's a lot of weight in that too. So making sure that that's what you want, that is sort of the truth of having one of those large roles. One thing too, if let's say a listener is considering moving into more of a management role, one thing that helped me and one thing that Aaron's talked about before is like starting small and prototyping it. For me, you know, I've really only managed small teams and I realized over the few years of doing that, that it's not my strength, really. I can do it and I can be okay at it. But for me, it's more, I like to create things. And, you know, as a leader and a manager, you are creating, you're creating teams, you're creating, you know, companies, but I have to be like, yeah, systems, I have to be more hands-on, you know, from that's why I love doing the podcast with Aaron, because we're making stuff all the time, not just the show, but different creative assets and things like that. So I think experimenting with it and, you may be the type that realizes like, hey, this is something that's been missing in my career, in my life, and I really enjoy it. Or you may have a chance to say like, I tried this and it's just not not me. Yeah. And that's okay. It's like, I just, totally you know, I, okay. want people, I want people to hear like, <laughs> there's no shame in being a manager and then deciding like, hey, I want to go back to what I was doing before. It's all right. We can try things and we can change course and it's okay. Totally. Think about if... We had only ever had managers that wanted to be managers. What sort of lovely work environment would that be, right? Wow. <laughs> it's like that pyramid. You've probably seen the pyramid drawing of like an organization where it's like the psychopaths at the top and then the clueless and then the losers. It's like, it's very brutal. But in some senses, you know, if you're at the wrong corner of an organization, that's what it is. You know, it's like only the people with very specific type of personality type make it in those really cutthroat type roles. Another book that I'll throw out there as a recommendation to your listeners is The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And you talked about cutthroat roles and you know the dealing with difficult colleagues as well. That book is a resource for really injecting more ease in having difficult colleagues and difficult conversations because their counsel is find something to appreciate about them. And I'm sure that you all have ha- have worked with incredibly difficult people, right? People that you were just like, I do not know what planet you are from. But if you find out something that you can appreciate about them, even if it is them teaching you the kind of leader that you never want to be <laughs> and sort of observing the contours of that, then that introduces some ease into that interaction and you see them as more of a human being. If a dangerous question to wrap us up here, but where do companies get change wrong? What could they do better? The seminal story that I tell in the book is about poor Tara. And Tara works in the HR team and the people team and learning and development. And her day, she ships a change to the L&D platform. 
and tells everybody about it and just closes their laptop, walks away. People who loved the old learning and development benefit, they start raging in public channels, right? Or in media and internal channels, they are unhappy. And this blowback totally makes Tara feel really on edge. And she doesn't feel like she can participate in the company culture in the way that she once has. So think about that small example writ large. <laughs> Just make it even bigger for a department level change, make it even bigger for a change at the leadership team level. And the steps there that are in the problem space or feel very painful are folks weren't consulted. The change didn't happen incrementally to give people a, a chance to get used to it. The goal was unclear. Like, why are we doing this? When people could consider the change over is also unclear because it's a commitment to have a sort of end date when people can reflect and give their feedback. So I offer a lightweight approach to change management in the book called Amicus, which I believe makes change more friendly. And it's a way to work around some of those pitfalls that can happen because change can feel really sort of authoritarian, like because I said so. <laughs> and the pieces of amicus are A, assess what needs to change, set metrics goals in a timeline. I build buy-in with incremental change. C, create a communications plan. Incentivize and reward folks for participating in change, which is you, and S, which is the most important step, which is show the impact of the change. So if you are in a position where you're dealing with like a reduction in force or budget cuts or something really, really painful. Saying the goal of the thing and then sharing if it had its intended result is a way to bring people in the problem and solution space with you. You know, if you there was only two months of runway and there was a reduction in force and now there's another year of runway, just say that, right? Like say why you are making the change and if the sacrifice was worth it. There's a whole framework in the book with exercises, small changes, medium changes, large changes, and how to communicate change specifically because it can be really scary your first time manager when you're a manager that you have to roll out change or as a leader. And I just wanted something that was lightweight enough, that was research backed, that included more voices of the team in the decision-making process so that tech teams could use it. Because, you know, the orgs that we work for do not have time for massive change management, right? We do not have time for McKinsey to come in and do like a six-month assessment phase. Like, we need a framework that, you know, I don't want to mess this up. So what could I do today to make this less painful to my teams or my company? Super useful. Vanessa, this has been great. Where can folks find the book and find you? Wonderful. So the book is available at abookapart.com and your listeners have a discount code, Better10, gets them 10% off the book. And the change management firm that I lead is called Fortuna. So it's fortuna.ink. And I'm really into mythology and my pug's name is Tuna. So that's where the name of the firm came from. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Vanessa, this was a treat. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In this episode of Office Hours from Design Better, we're speaking with Lori McLeese, Global Head of Human Resources at Automatic. Automatic is a fully distributed company with the goal of democratizing publishing and commerce 
so that anyone with a story can tell it. Lori talks about the always-be-learning ethos at Automatic and why they call their team distributed rather than remote. I am Lori McLeese, and I am the global head of people at Automatic, and I have been with Automatic for 13 years, so I've seen a lot of changes. Early on in my tenure here, we introduced the creation of teams and product areas and encouraging people to work on goals rather than whatever interested them. That actually did work for the first few years that people could work on just whatever they were interested in. And we got some pretty cool things out of it. The main difference that I see between distributed and remote is that remote implies that there is a central place. And if you're not in that central place, then you're remote. And distributed means everyone's on the same playing field. So everyone's working from home or wherever they choose to work from. And we've created those tools and guidelines to support everyone having more of like an equal contribution. One of our biggest products is WordPress.com, which is a hosted version of the WordPress open source project. And we use our own tools to communicate. And so we have a product called P2, which is a theme of a WordPress website. And it allows for interaction. And one of the reasons that's so important is that because we are all around the world, we have people working very different hours. And that allows for people to contribute when they're working and then for others to respond when they're working. And it also encourages a little bit more thoughtfulness because you can read an idea that someone proposes and think about it without having to feel the need to respond immediately. That is super important for us. You know, we're all adults and we like to be trusted as adults. And so we put as much information out there as possible. All of our P2s, with the exception of employee records, are public for anyone in the organization to see. And so whenever we're thinking about doing an acquisition, our monthly financial results, everything is open so that if people are interested, they can view it. It encourages much more collaboration and you can pretty much share anything except for like passwords and confidential information. We're all better when we share information and you can iterate on it. So we don't try to keep things closed. We really do try to open it up. Distributed work is actually good for including folks that maybe are underrepresented in the workplace. And so you see people that maybe do have a hard time commuting to an office. They can still contribute fully in a distributed environment. You do see like, New mothers who may have a hard time coming back to an office for eight hours a day, they can still contribute fully from their homes. That is one thing that I'm really excited about is that we are making sure that we're including the widest diversity of talent. I have learned so much by working at Automatic. There's this 
ethos in our environment about always be learning. And it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to share your mistakes and discuss it openly with others, which I actually really, really appreciate. We always hire with the understanding that we want you to have a career at Automatic. We're not going to hire if we cannot commit to our part of the deal. Go to automatic.com forward slash work hyphen with hyphen us forward slash. And there you can submit your interest. This is the longest relationship I've had in my life. <laughs> and it is pretty special. Feel very, very fortunate to have been a part of building the company. To learn more about career opportunities at Automatic, go to dbtr.co slash automatic with two T's. That's dbtr.co slash A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.